According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. One more time. We'll have this morning and we'll have Wednesday. And then my intention at this point is to introduce Colossians uh, one week from today. So... We'll see if my intentions come true or not. The Lord can overrule. But Philippians chapter 4, we were looking at verses uh, 1 through 9 uh, last Wednesday and uh, dealing with the issues there whereby Yodi and Seneki need to cooperate. They need to get along and, and uh, be of the same mind, which they used to be. Uh, at some point, they had been fellow workers with the Apostle Paul and they had done real well. But here lately, they'd struggled. And uh, so the true companion was called upon to try to reconcile those women and bring them to the place where they could once again be like-minded with Jesus Christ for the, uh, the bearing of fruit. Moving on this morning, though, verses 10 and following, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, finally, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. This is the context for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so we spent quite a bit of time teaching these verses. This is our review, uh, as I say, and then Wednesday we'll do the review of uh, 15 through 23, and then our review will be complete and we'll be ready for Colossians on Sunday morning. God of spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to prepare your heart for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the blessing that we have one more time to assemble together, that in your grace program, Father, there is a lampstand where the Word of God can go forth, where brothers and sisters that are hungry for truth, Father, we can be fed. And this is uh, nothing that we've earned or deserved, Father. Who are we? And yet, in your Son, Father, you've freely given us all things. We uh, thank you for the grace provision of a lampstand, for the Word of God, for the for a gifted communicator, for gifted hearers, and all that you've designed in this church age for your son to be glorified. We pray for the teaching this day, for the missionary report, for the birthday celebration, for the systematic theology class, just for everything that happens on this day, that uh, you would be well pleased, that your son would be exalted and glorified. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we're looking at the grace-giving gratitude the grace-giving gratitude. The Philippians had sent a gift, and Epaphroditus was the courier, and he had come from Philippi to Paul's prison location. I believe it was Ephesus. The traditional location, though, was Rome. But whichever the location was where Paul was imprisoned, Epaphroditus had traveled from Philippi to Paul's location and brought a gift, and had brought a gift that was a long time coming. 
because even though formerly the Philippians were the biggest supporters Paul ever had, they came to a season where they weren't able to, to provide any longer. And that was a, a, a trouble. It was trouble for them. And, uh, and Paul just by faith accepted it for what it is and said, okay, uh, we get along with, with humble means. We get along in, in whatever God chooses to supply. And so this then becomes the, uh, the pattern. I didn't get down to verses uh, 14 and following as we were reading earlier, but you'll spot it in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. They were the only ones supporting his needs at that point of time in the second missionary journey. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Even there, you know, the Thessalonians were very generous, very noble, and they would have supported Paul if they'd have been able to. But some of their funds were actually locked away when they had to pay a fee. They actually, the house of Jason, uh, the, the authorities came in and took a, took a pledge from Jason that Paul would leave town and not come back. And so, you know, when the, when the city government comes along and ties up some of your, your money <laughs> that you're not free to spend on ministry pursuits because you've got to build a stupid pond across the driveway, when, when that kind of money gets locked up by your, your hostile government, what do you do? You just thank God for His faithfulness and you, uh, you stay faithful in the capacity that He provides. All right, and so this is what we're looking at here. As far as this goes, the, the passage begins with mega rejoicing. This is mega rejoicing. This is a book that has a lot of rejoicing. There's rejoicing in every chapter, but this is rejoicing. The verb is Cairo in the Greek, but this is a, a verb whereby we have the modifier of mega. And just like with megabytes and other mega things we have today, uh, mega blockbusters and so forth, uh, all of those mega terms we use today come from this mega term, come from the Greek, whereby it is great, it is abundant, it is great rejoicing in the Lord. Now at last their concern has revived. This is the 14th and final rejoicing reference in this epistle, and it is mega rejoicing. He says, Ekarenda and curio megalos. I rejoice in the Lord megalos, greatly. And the adverb of mega is megalos and uh, modifying his rejoicing. And so won't take the time this morning, but we, d- we have several times now in the process of teaching Philippians, we've gone through and we've seen all the places where rejoicing is commanded and where it's commanded again. Paul had no problem repeating himself. In fact, he loved to repeat himself as it reinforced the principle in the uh, minds of his hearers. But I would recommend if you want to do a word study on Cairo, C-H-A-I-R-O, Strong's number 5463, you'll have some fun with that, 74 uses there. And then Kara, number 5479, you'll add another 59 uses there. Really combine the two, combine the verb and the noun, and uh, you'll have a, a marvelous word study throughout the New Testament. About 14 of them here in this book, no question that uh, the emphasis on uh, Philippians is rejoice. Now at last, now at last, I love those words, um, this expresses a thrill. This, respect, uh, this is a thrill. This is, this is the shout of a human being, like all of us. We are creatures of time, bound by time. And when things are out of our control, all we can do is wait, right? And all we can do is wait, especially if we're waiting for a day that might not ever come. That's the hardest waiting of all. So this expresses a thrill for finite temporal creatures living in suspense, waiting for a day that might never come. 
And so he says, now at last. And he's been waiting. They've been in a a dry season. They've been in a period of time whereby they were not able to express their concern financially. And really, they never stopped being concerned. It only appears that way. It appears that way from our perspective. But the idea is, is that we are finite temporal creatures. We're creatures of time. And we live one day at a time, one moment at a time throughout each day. And as time lingers longer and longer, we grow more and more impatient. We grow more and more wondering how long is this going to take? Because we don't know the end from the beginning. All we can do is keep our eyes on the Lord and wait by faith. And uh, we have the aspect there. So when he says, now at last, it's as if the dam has burst. It's now as if it's, uh, it's, it's finally returned and, and he is just so thrilled that uh, the Philippians are a, a flock that are going to continue on. They're not, uh, they're not on the verge of dissolving. They're not on the verge of closing up their doors and, and uh, scattering to wherever when, uh, when a ministry shuts down. See, So now at last is something to be, to be thankful for. It's also part of what helps us to date the book of Philippians because we do know that at a certain point the Philippians helped uh, contribute a monster famine relief fund for the saints at Jerusalem. And it's spoken of in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians and in Romans. They all speak to that famine relief fund. And so uh, it's really, I think, the, the nail in the coffin for the folks that try to postpone the writing of Philippians until Paul's Roman imprisonment. No, it was during the third missionary journey during his Ephesian ministry that he had uh, multiple jailings and in which he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. So we'll, we'll give you some more of that background as we, get into, um, as we get into Colossians. But waiting for a day that might not ever come. You know, it's like Romans 1.10. Paul was hoping to visit Rome someday and he wasn't sure when it was going to happen. And uh, so you just stay faithful and you watch and you wait. Romans 1.10 says, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, there's that idiom again, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. At last. And these are just, you know, the frustrations. And here we are, we're human creatures. God, of course, knows. He's had a plan from the foundation of the world. He knows the end from the beginning. The timing is always perfect in his program. We're the ones that, uh, that have that sense of finally, or took you long enough, or, or uh, issues there, whereby we're just delighted that it's finally come about. Reviving your concern is reviving your thinking. And this is, uh, again, the, the final use of phreneo. We've had a lot of thinking in this, in this book as well. And so we like to say that Philippians is the book of rejoicing, first of all, as a primary emphasis. But really second, right behind that, is the book of thinking to have this thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, or to, uh, to think so as to have sound judgment, or all the, the thinking usages that you have in uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. How about that? Every single chapter has phreneo, has a thinking application to be found uh, in the book of Philippians. So reviving your concern. And that makes sense, right? Then we have a similar aspect if if there's somebody you're thinking about, is that not somebody you're concerned about? The idea that if you are truly concerned about a person, then you probably need to be thinking about them every now and then. Uh, somebody that you haven't thought about for years and years, I'm suspecting that you're not really, really concerned about that person because you haven't thought about them in ages. Where, where's your concern if you're not thinking about them? 
And so uh, true concern is, is really a thought process whereby we remember them before the throne of grace and we're praying for them. And then he says, anathalo, you have revived your concern. You have nursed it back to health. And the idea of thalazo, even like uh, cognate nouns that refer to nursing, you know, a mother and her child when uh, the child is, is at the, drinking the breast milk and the, there's the nursing that happens there. And uh, so this is what happens. And you can do the same thing with animals or plants. Uh, there's a botanical usage that's found in Ezekiel 17. If something can blossom again or sprout again, even though you thought it had previously been dead, it uses uh, this same verb, follow. So nurse it back to health. Reviving a dead concern is how it appeared to Paul. And right? That's, I mean, that's a subjective view. It seems that way that it was a dead concern, but now it's been nursed back to health. It's been revived. But the reality is they never stopped thinking about him. They never stopped thinking about him. They simply lacked the opportunity to express that concern financially. And it truly is a a remarkable um, admission on his part in, in verse 10b when he says, indeed, you were concerned all along. You were concerned before. You were concerned the whole time. You never stopped being concerned, but you lacked the opportunity. You lacked the opportunity. And so this is what happens when you lose the opportunity. Well, then God doesn't hold you accountable. You don't have to bear fruit with something you don't have. If he doesn't give it to you, what are you supposed to do? You can't give if God does not first give. And so we understand that. That's the principle, that it's rewardable based upon your attitude according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. That becomes an important principle. And this is where I think brothers and sisters, they want to give in grace. They want to give as unto the Lord. They want to give uh, the sweet-smelling savor as a, as a cheerful giver. Um, but keep in mind, it's only as the Lord provides. If He has not provided you with the means to do so, then it is not your assignment at this time or within the capacity of what He's provided Within that limitation is what you can provide. And I believe that every believer can give within the capacity, the proportion and ratio that they've been supplied. And so this, I think this comes out very well um, in different applications. Obviously, financial is the consideration we're looking at here. But you lacked opportunity, all right? And so as the opportunity is presented, redeem it. Redeem the opportunity. And until the opportunity is presented, well then pray about it. Give it to the Lord and stay ready and say presently it's a closed door and so I'm, I'm going to relax about the opportunities that aren't there yet. But I'm also going to be ready when the door does open again that I'm going to be jumping in with two feet. I'm going to be right back on board again when that opportunity opens up. See. All right, and so some of these, I think, uh, are worth looking at as well. The idea of eukareo, a good opportunity, a good season in uh, Mark 6.31. Mark 6.31. Don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but they're worth reminding ourselves about. So the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. 
<laughs> okay? This is unique to Mark, by the way. Matthew, Luke, John, no, nobody else records this. But Mark is the gospel of the servant. Mark is the gospel whereby he notices the little things. And when Jesus is, is ministering so long that they don't even take time for, for eating, that's a problem. So you've got to stop. You've got to eat. And uh, there's no opportunity. So recognize when you have an opportunity. You know, in the army, you, you slept when you had the opportunity. You ate when you had the opportunity. You just, you didn't want to let an opportunity go to waste because you're not sure when the next one might come. So use this one. If you've got a moment, you know, grab a power nap and do what you need to do. And I think that's, that's the case in ministry for pastors, for missionaries, for evangelists. Understand, is this the opportunity for service or is this the opportunity for rest, refreshment, to, to recharge things so that when the next opportunity for service comes up, I'll be ready to, uh, to proceed full speed ahead. Acts 17.21. Another opportunity. And... Uh, it's interesting what the things you make time for. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time, they found opportunities to do this. They would spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And you think, well, what a waste of time. Ah, but your waste of time is somebody else's perfect time. Somebody else's great opportunity, see. And... Uh, so, you know, on a subjective basis when you decide. And these are the kind of things we're going to be promoting too, by the way, next week when we introduce our Scripture Memory uh, Challenge for the summer and, and we start making the Colossians books available. You know, when do you have opportunity to, to memorize your, your Bible verses for the week? And when do you find opportunities during each day and seven days a week? And so you're not just trying to do a, a crash program on Saturday night for a Sunday morning recitation. Uh, it's better if you're actually consistently taking those opportunities throughout the week. Anyway, spending their time and nothing other than telling or hearing something new. 1 Corinthians 16, 12, another good opportunity. And this one really, really had to hurt when, he, when the Corinthians read this. For one-fourth of the Corinthian converse, uh, congregation, this verse was upsetting. Okay? Because remember, they were a schismatic congregation, and one-fourth of them were, were uh, Apollos fans. They were uh, supporters of Apollos. They loved everything Apollos said or did. They wanted him to come back. And what Paul tells them here, he says, well, now concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with <coughs> to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, oops, but he will come when he has opportunity. When he has opportunity, see? And that's legitimate. In the will of God, for evangelists and pastors, missionaries, apostles, I mean, you've got to be responsive to the opportunities that God lays before you. And uh, if there's, you know, if you're trying to be a people pleaser because the crowds want it, You've got to stop and say, wait a minute, what is the Lord directing me here? Because these crowds, or at least a fourth of the flock in, in Corinth, they wanted Apollos to be there more than anything. And Paul said, well, you know what? He, he's not really excited about going. <laughs> but he'll come when he has opportunity. See? And I think we have uh, patterns to learn from there. Similar, of course, to our expression in 2 Timothy 4.2, where the pastor is commanded to be ready in season and out of season. And uh, We've got uh, an adverb there, two adverbs actually, akairos and eukairos. 
And uh, so we have these uh, synonyms and antonyms that we have related to time, related to opportunities. And so in season and out of season, preach the word, be ready, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so that expression is, uh, is, uh, is curious because we've got we to gotta be ready in season and out of season. And it may not be convenient, but if God calls us to do it, well then, there we go. And uh, we have the imperative there. Here's the principle. Whether the opportunity is there or not, it's the readiness that's always rewardable. Whether the opportunity is there or not, it's the readiness that's always rewardable. Don't ever lose sight of that, okay? And particularly, uh, not just in money and financial giving, but also in evangelism and anything that we do. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ever ready to give an account, a defense for the hope that is within you with gentleness? If someone was to ask, and so you want to be ready. And it may be that you are perfectly ready and they just never ask. <laughs> All right, say, okay, well, the opportunity's not there. I was ready. It's just somebody else is going to be used by the Lord on this occasion because right now that door's closed. This person's negative. The, the questions aren't being asked. It's just not the season. But I'm ready for when the season is there, you understand. Also with the, with the finances, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This too is in a financial context. And so um, talking about grace giving, this whole chapter, chapter 8 and chapter 9 is about grace giving and uh, the fact that in the church age we're not under law. We don't have tithing. We don't have the mandatory half to 10%. We have the New Testament grace giving of what do you want to give? It doesn't have to be a, a minimum. It's what you want it to be, and there's no maximum. You can just give and, as your heart desires. And uh, the example here being the Philippians, that, uh, that they gave and that they, they begged for the, uh, the favor. And um, in these early verses too, by the way, you've got you to gotta reconcile this with Philippians and say, how do these circumstances match with a late date of Philippians, they certainly don't. They match much better with an early date for Philippians when they put together this tremendous financial gift. All right. Now, um, getting down to 12 through 14 then, verse 12 says, well, let's see, verse 11, he says, finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. And when you exegete that verse and unpack it, there's a whole lot of steps in that. There's a whole lot of steps in that because not only is there doing something, but then there's the desire to do something. And then behind the desire to do something is the readiness, the eagerness, which is actually attitudinal before the formal thoughts choose to do what the formal thoughts choose to do. And so there's readiness, there's uh, desire, and then there's doing the completion of it. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable. That's the, that's the reward. It is a sweet-smelling savor. It is acceptable before the Father's throne of grace. Not the doing of it, not the wanting to do it or choosing to do it, but the readiness, the attitudinal uh, uh, generosity that feeds the thinking, that feeds the doing. That's what is rewardable, acceptable. 
according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Notice that? It's what you have, not what you don't have. God's not holding you accountable. You're not uh, tested in realms that you're not tested in yet. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. That makes sense. See, if you're, uh, if you're unmarried, if you're a bachelor, God does not hold you to account at the judgment seat of Christ for how good a husband you are. Well, duh, right? You're not married yet. You're not, uh, why, why would he hold you accountable for being a, a good husband or a bad husband or somewhere in between? Why would you be held accountable for your fruit as a husband when he never gave you a wife? See, well, your, what's your attitude? Okay, same thing with grace giving. Same thing with grace giving. It's not the dollar amount. It's because it's, it, all giving is according to what you have. You can't give what you don't have. But within the attitude that is generous, the attitude that wants to give, the heart that's supporting a ministry, prayerfully, if nothing else, and then financially when you have the opportunity. We have the, uh, the blessings there. Not according to what a person does not have. For th- it is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Grace giving is not designed... So that some people bear the load and some people skate. That some people are underwriting other people's uh, easy lifestyle. No, not what it is. It goes both directions. And so uh, because the present time, in verse 14 notice, at the present time, at this now, your abundance being a supply for their need. Okay, that's the direction it's going today. But what's it going to be down the road? What's going to be next year? What's going to be later on? So that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. You know what? It can go the other direction. And it, it may be sooner than you think that that testing can flip around just the opposite uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in short time. So that their abundance will become a supply for your need so that there may be equality. It equals out over time as Christians serve one another in these ways. And, and beyond just the money of it too, by the way, comes other realms of service. Whereby if, if, uh, if uh, someone is ministering in spiritual things, then you can make a return in financial things. That uh, you can serve, uh, make a, a, a grace contribution in other realms. Realms of time, realms of service, realms of talent. And, uh, and, and it's a win-win. Christ is glorified every time. It's a win-win when believers are giving in the proper attitude. All right, so I'm glad we got to this this morning because this, uh, there was a lot of exegesis in this, and the, particularly there in verse 11 where you almost have to teach the verse, or verse 12, you almost have to teach the verse backwards because there's the doing, there's the uh, desire to do it, and then there's the readiness to desire. The readiness to desire. And that's, that's almost like the great southern fixin' to that, uh, that y'all taught me when, when I first went to Alabama. I went to boot camp in Alabama and I learned about fixin' to. And I never heard fixin' to in my life. Nobody in Seattle, Washington was ever fixin' to do anything. They just did stuff, okay? But I get to boot camp in Alabama and all of a sudden everybody's fixing to do all kinds of stuff. And I just never, I mean, I was overwhelmed at first and then I embraced it when I saw, hey, this is kind of a neat thing. 
And, but it comes down to that attitude. It is an eagerness attitude that's just on the edge of your seat, waiting, 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 okay? Like if you're ready to give an account, that means you're on the edge of your seat, waiting, waiting, thinking, oh, I hope they ask me. I hope they, I, I'm really waiting for this person to say, what must I do to be saved, right? And I'm, I'm just eager. I'm on the edge of my seat waiting. They don't even have to be that blunt about it. They could just say something innocuous that's kind of partway positive. And I'll jump at that because I'm eager. It's an eagerness. I hope this makes sense. Because I think some Christians are eager the opposite direction because they're like cringing, saying, oh, I hope they ask Doug, right? I hope they don't ask me. Oh, I hope if they ask Fallon, then she can get them saved and they don't have to ask me. You know, if, if, if I'm, that means I'm eager the other direction. That means I'm hesitant, I'm reluctant, I'm eager to not be asked. I'm really, it's kind of like a last resort that, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll have to say something now. That's not the attitude that's rewardable. The attitude that's rewardable wants to preach the gospel at a drop of a hat, and you'll drop the hat yourself if you have to. I mean, it's just that's the, that's the occasion that you're looking for. So whether the opportunity is there or not, readiness is always rewardable. All right. Secondly, what else does Paul do here? Paul frames the personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. As a context for contentment. And so we drew this out as a spectrum. Recognize that uh, it's a relative scale for all of humanity. And, uh, and some of us are towards the richer side of things, and some of us are towards the poorer side of things. And uh, only, only one of us is the richest guy in the world. And so whoever he is, he's there on that far extent of things. And then uh, the poorest guy in the world. You've got a spectrum, but wherever you are on that spectrum, somewhere in between, and on a global scale, of course, Americans are all very, very blessed. All right? And on, as far as where we are on that scale, regardless of where we are, the blessing is contentment. The blessing is recognizing, he calls it even, calls it a secret, the secret of being content. So Paul frames this personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. Learning to be content with little and also learning to be content with a lot. Say, well, how hard is that? That's easy. Just, you know, let me win the lottery next week and I'll show you how easy the, uh, the prosperity test is. Oh, no, no. It's the harder test. It is the harder test. And Solomon is our example. We've got plenty of examples whereby the prosperity test is harder than the adversity test. Neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible when a believer walks by faith, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Philippians 4 verses 11 and 12. Remember this? There's a lot to unpack here, but ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Unlike the unstable people that are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth, we should be ever learning and ever coming to the knowledge of the truth. We should learn the secret. And he uses that language here. So, not that I speak from want. It's not deprivation that motivates my speech. Paul's saying that. Okay? And, you know... We get that. It's not comfortable to talk about money. If the preacher's preaching on money, then people in the church think, ooh, you know, 
the budget must be struggling or, ooh, you know, what's going on? And so he says, I'm not speaking from want. It's not deprivation that's motivating this language. For I have learned to be content. Doesn't come naturally. It's not a human trait. (laughs) It's certainly not a fallen human trait. But the contentment that gets learned through the scriptures is, uh, is so powerful. Learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's, an, that's a blank check right there. That's anything. Anything goes, whatever circumstances. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. Both require doctrinal application. In whatever tax bracket your God has placed you in. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. And here's the secret. The secret is both. Learn the secret of being filled and going hungry. Now, can you do both at the same time? If you go get yourself an all-you-can-eat pluckers thing, the Monday is uh, all-you-can-eat wings, and Thursday is all-you-can-eat tenders. Um, But, you know, go and get yourself one of those. And and then... uh, don't you feel obligated if, if it's a flat fee, no matter how much you eat? I, I mean, I do. I think it's kind of you want to be a good steward of money. And if you've spent that kind of money, you want to eat more. And then you get into gluttony. <laughs> so the point I'm illustrating, though, is that you can't be full because you just ate 20 wings and then you're pushing yourself away from the table You can't be simultaneously full and hungry at the same time. It's just not possible. We're talking biologically in the the digestive system here. If you're full, you're full. And if you're hungry, you're hungry. And you can't be both simultaneously. But this text says you can. This text says you can be both full and hungry. You can be both filthy rich and dirt poor. That is having abundance and suffering needs simultaneously. So how do these things happen simultaneously for us in the spiritual dimension, in the, in the, in the Christian way of life? Because we want to recognize that there is the earthly circumstances and the spiritual circumstances. That's one way to reconcile this seemingly contradictory, contradictory thing. That you can be earthly poor and spiritually rich simultaneously. That's that's a possible reconciliation. That uh, some of the most spiritually wealthy believers I've ever known in my life have been economically modest for their entire their entire life. Okay, and I've known some very well-to-do people. Physically, I mean, you know, in in earthly currency, they they are well well off, and they're spiritually destitute. They don't have a spiritual bank account to match their uh, their earthly bank account, and so simultaneously, those things can be true. Same thing with hunger. Same thing with being full, that you can have the divine viewpoint perspective regardless of what the external temporal life situation is, and you still before the Lord uh, are, uh, remember the Laodiceans that thought that they were rich and had need of nothing, and God told them, you know what, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? That's what we're talking about, okay? And so that earthly spiritual contrast is one way that we can... um, We can resolve this apparent contradiction here. But there's another way. The other way that we can be simultaneously rich and poor, the other way we can be simultaneously full and hungry, the other way to reconcile that is to stop thinking of ourselves as individuals. 
and recognize each one of us as a member of the body of Christ. And that as members one to another, we have amongst ourselves everything. Rich, poor, in between, hungry, full, in between, uh, physically strong, physically weak, healthy, sickly, right? All right. And so we do simultaneously possess these things. Because if I happen to be on the on the financially well-off side of things, and my brother happens to be on the financially struggling side of things, how does that work for the glory of Christ? Well, I've got the capacity to bless and to share and to provide and to, to honor our Savior. And this is how it, uh, this is how it comes together. Jesus contrasted need on the one hand, abundance on the other hand. Remember this? He taught about the widow's might. And you can find this in Mark 12 and Luke 21. He demonstrated that, uh, that neither extreme of the personal financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. If you're as poor as that widow and you give your last, your last two lepta coins, Jesus praised that and said she gave more than all those rich people put together. She had the right attitude. They were flipping about it. They were, they were giving out of their excess. They were giving some of their who cares money. And then it, to them, it was not a sweet smelling savor. To them, it was not for the glory of the Lord. When you read through the example there. <coughs> Paul likewise contrasted this. It says that they gave out of their extreme poverty. The abundance of their grace overflowed. So uh, neither extreme of the local church financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. Contentment does not alter the reality of suffering need. Let's be clear on that. Just because you're content doesn't change the reality of what you're dealing with. If you're you're still poor, you're still hungry, you're still have you're still suffering need. Contentment doesn't change that reality. But it does allow for your thinking, your speaking, and your acting to not be driven by the need or the want or the deficiency. He says, I'm not speaking from deficiency. I'm not speaking from need. So when you have that contentment, it, it's not in the, you, you just take it out of the driver's seat. You can put it in the passenger seat, you can put it in the back seat, you can throw it in the trunk. As long as it's not in the driver's seat, whereby your deficiencies, your deprivation is just steering you every which way. You don't want to be speaking from need or thinking from need or acting from need. You want to be acting from contentment. To be sufficient, to be adequate, to be satisfied, to be content. Scripture says an awful lot. The verb is arkeo. Scripture says an awful lot about being content. And uh, I think it's huge. I think the basis for an awful lot of human failure is the pride that sparks discontentment. That I should have a a better paying job. I should have a, a prettier wife. I should have a uh, you know, and just people get content. They get discontent in their work. They get discontent in their marriage. They get discontent with their children. They get discontent with everything under the sun and they can grumble and find fault with everything they can point at. Well, what feeds that? It's all the, the pride that feeds the attitude that can't learn to be content. So be content. 
It's sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul had to learn that lesson. All right. Paul employs a remarkable progression. And then the series of verbs here is interesting because he says, I have learned. And then he says, I know. And then he says, I have learned the secret. And there's a progression of verbs there from verse 11 to 12a to 12b. And uh, it's kind of interesting as we uh, outlined this for you here. Montano is to learn. We should all learn. We're all disciples. Learning is the activity of a disciple. So when he says, I've learned to be content, well, then there you go. Learn the Word of God. Allow the Holy Spirit to communicate it to your human spirit. And uh, you're a believer, right? You've got a living human spirit. You can learn the Word of God. You, can mon- you are capable of monthanoing the Word of God because you are a methetes, you are a disciple. So learning is the activity of a disciple, a learner. But then there's oida, there's knowing, the full knowledge here. And he goes through this progression. And I think, I think it's significant. So when he says, I've learned to be content in verse 11, then in verse 12 he says, I oida, I know fully, comprehensively through experience, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. That's not gnosis anymore. That's not even epinosis at that point. That's oida. This is where uh, he's making application in his daily life, and it's, it's his uh, how-to function. The comprehensive how-to function in daily life across every personal financial circumstance. And then he gets to learning the mysteries, learning the secret. And this is the most unusual term. It's only used once anywhere in the New Testament, and this is it right here. The verb is mueo, M-U-E-O, mueo. It's a technical term of the mystery religions, to be initiated into the mysteries. And if you've ever studied the New Testament and what Gnosticism was and what the mystery cults were about and the other problems they had to deal with in the first and second century, really second century when it blossomed fully. But when you realize that this is the context in the ancient world as the New Testament was being written and a technical term like mueo gets used, that grabs our attention. Why is Paul using a word like that? I think he deliberately used used that word to be provocative. Deliberately used that word to be provocative. So think about it. Have you ever been in a in an initiation ritual? That maybe in our next potluck we can sit around and discuss our initiation rituals. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there was a fraternity you joined once upon a time, and they uh, maybe we don't want to learn those stories. Uh, we can keep it generic. We can learn. Okay, maybe you had a military uh, platoon you were assigned to, and there was a welcome wagon to the to the platoon that involved um, some some physical pain or whatever, you've been initiated into something. I, in Boy Scouts, I was initiated into the Order of the Arrow, which was the elite camping uh, society within the, the Boy Scouts. Uh, there's other things you can be initiated into, okay? And when you get initiated into it, a club, a fraternity, whatever, secret society, okay? but then there's a ritual that goes with that. There's an investiture. There's a, there's a you know, some, an outfit you wear. There's a secret handshake they teach you, or, or there's a ring you put on, or whatever the case. You're going to be a mason, or whatever you're going to uh, be an optimist. I used to be an optimist, and part of the optimist club in North Austin, until they kicked me out. 
And uh, true story. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> mueo is this technical term of a mystery religion. So we can actually translate it initiated into the mysteries. Initiated into the mysteries. So he says, I learned to be content. I know how to get along. And I have been initiated into the secrets into the mysteries of, and then he describes the simultaneous hunger, hungry fullness and the simultaneous uh, rich poorness. He says, I've been initiated into these circumstances. So having been initiated into the mysteries, as it were, Paul knows the secret of a sated hunger and abounding lack. He knows the secret of a sated hunger and abounding lack. You can be aboundingly poor and rich at the same time. You can be starving and full at the same time. Once you are initiated into the mysteries, as this verb talks about. All right. There was a lot there. If you need more on that, of course, the MP3s are sitting on the website just minding their own MP3 business. Now, what's better than contentment? What's better than contentment is where contentment can take you. What contentment can do for you. Because if you're not content, then you'll never get past the point of contentment to the real place, which is competency. This mindset is not only a contentment, but also a competence. You want to be able to have the statement, I can, I can do all things. Do you want to have the I can do all things competency? You have to have the contentment that comes through the Word of God. There's a reason why the I've learned, I know, I've been initiated, all of that has to precede the I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Without the, without the contentment, you and I will never have the competency for the all things work assignment that He puts us through. He'll, he'll put you into a work assignment that you can't handle because you don't have the contentment. And so recognize this, the I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 follows contextually and logically by necessity the advancement through that progression of verses 11 and 12. I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life in the one presently continuously enduing me with power. That's a tremendous statement of faith. And without contentment, Paul could never say that. You and I can never say that. We will never be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me if I'm malcontent over all my circumstances and grumbling over where I am and what I'm dealing with and what the things I think I need that I don't have. And because I'm so maladjusted to my lack, uh, I'm completely disoriented to what he's providing, the strength he's providing me for today's assignment. And it is a daily assignment. God continually strengthens me. Him who strengthens me, that's a present tense, continuous action. It's continuously happening. And as it continuously happens, I continue to make the affirmation that his strength is supplying my competency, my ability. A lot of verses there to look at. All right. Remember the parable of the vine? 
apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, that's pretty clear. But with him, we can do everything. As, as we abide in him, as his words abide in us, the father's the vine dresser, what can we not do under those circumstances? It's a beautiful thing. So I like John 15 in this way. I like 2 Corinthians in this way. A lot of verses that, uh, that address this. All right. You want more exegesis on this? Iskuo is your verb from the noun iskus. Eight words from the iskus root have 76 uses in the New Testament. And it's so fun. Anytime you study power, study God's power, his dunamis, his iskus, his kratos, his might, any of the words that you have for power, and when you see the power that God has, and you see time and time again that that's the power he's giving you. Oh my. Well, let's keep things simple, shall we? Quit using your own ability, (laughs) right? As impressed with yourself as you are, God's not impressed with your ability. He wants you to be humble and make use of his ability. And so in him, all these things then become possible. Present passive participle. So we've got a present active, we've got a present passive. And the one makes the other possible. I can be actively strong because I am passively receiving his strength. He is strengthening me with endunamao strength. So as he keeps, as he keeps uh, strengthening me, I continue to be strong. So we've got the iskus root and we've got the dunamai root. Fun word studies there. Now, after thanking them for the money, he then has a side note here that uh, says, you know, even without it, I would have been okay. Although Paul can function contentedly without the Philippian support, it is a good thing for them to share in his affliction. He's thankful that they did. And he's thankful not only for the money, but that they were sharers in the affliction. So he says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. That's rewardable. That's where the fruit is. They became partakers of Paul's affliction when in their heart love for Paul, they they joined in that affliction, motivating, of course, the, the money that they sent. And so it's described there. He says um, in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Isn't that beautiful? That's the real deal. Okay, so yes, he benefits that they sent cash. He's thankful for that. But what's better than that? They profited. What's better than that? The Philippian saints laid up treasures in heaven. The Philippian saints are rewarded at the Bema Seat of Christ. And that's what thrills Paul more than, the, more than the cash that he received. He says, more than that, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That when you are giving in grace principles, you're not diminished. You profit by serving the Lord. Every time. You cannot be diminished. And this is where... Um, uh, they probably didn't teach you this as a, as a CPA. <laughs> okay, In earthly terms, a CPA would uh, say, okay, you spent that money, and they would mark that in red, or they would say, okay, this is, uh, you know, we've got incomes and we've got expenses, and this is money that went out, and this money that went out, I'm, I have to deduct that from the, 
from the, uh, from the balance. And, uh, and now you have less because you spent and money went out. All right? Well, that's human terms. Okay? Spiritual terms. You serve the Lord in sacrificial grace giving. And in that, in that spiritual ledger that God is keeping account at the Bema Seat of Christ, there's an increase. There's a profit that's just been accumulated. There's a profit that was just assigned to your account because it was a sweet-smelling savor. It was a sacrifice. Verse 18, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Isn't that beautiful? That's the language we're looking at in Hebrews. That's the language you find in Leviticus. You find this is the language of a sweet-smelling savor, a priestly sacrifice that goes up on the altar, an aroma before the Lord. It's so much more than just uh, you know, a, a financial transaction. It's so much more than just, and this is why, um, you know, and I understand people do different things, and, and, and I'm not critical, okay? You're free to, God bless you, in your, in your faith convictions as unto the Lord, okay? There are, I, and I get this, we live in the modern world, and I'm not uh, going to disparage that, but there are, for my faith, my application, I, I, um, I don't want contributions to the church to be equalized with paying the cable bill. I don't want to be equalized with, well, it's just an automatic bill pay. It's just an automatic draft. It just comes off. I don't even think about it. It's just, uh, and so at that point, it's, it's like uh, the, the cable bill or, or my, my uh, Scrabble fees or, or, you know, just some other, some other utility. You know, it's like the gas or the trash or whatever. And, and when in reality, should this not be a sweet-smelling savor as unto the Lord? Could I not have a word of prayer? Could I, could I not thank the Father for His grace and, and really offer it up as a sweet-smelling savor in, uh, in the application there? And yeah, that's the, that's the emphasis on that. Synchronized fellowship of Paul's afflictions. Financial missionary support is called fellowship sharing in the matter of giving and receiving. But there's other matters. When he talks about in the matter of giving and receiving, okay, well, that's one way to give. But there are other matters of fellowship sharing. You can actually travel to a location and join with an endeavor and uh, become a fellow participant as uh, Yodia and Siddiqui were with Paul, fellow athletes in the, in the gospel ministry. The Philippian grace financial support was Paul's only financial support during a significant stage of his second missionary journey. And he said that, you're my last one, the only one, the only one. And it's kind of curious, you know, as, you know, so... You had a base, right? Because Antioch sent them out. And then there were other churches along the way. There was other support. But then, you know, it happens. I'm running out of time. It happens. But, um, and so, you know, you lose a supporter. You lose a supporter. You lose a supporter. You start noticing, okay, the, the giving is dropping. The giving is dropping. The giving is dropping. And what happens then as a missionary, as a pastor, as a believer, when you're down to the last 
supporter. The very last one. And then they stop. <laughs> okay? They stopped. And the Apostle Paul says, all right, I know how to get along in humble means. I know how to get along in prosperity in any and every circumstance. And the Apostle Paul at that point has a seminary where he's training Timothy and Titus and all these younger guys. And uh, I believe those young men learned a lot watching Paul, watching how he handled the, he illustrated for them these secrets that he learned here in this chapter. All right, well, I'm out of time. Um, In the realm of grace giving, it is the giver that eternally profits. And then his final comment regarding the flipping gift places this aspect of local church ministry firmly within the priesthood function of the body of Christ. Everything we do is in the priestly function of the body of Christ. The preaching is a priestly function. The giving is a priestly function. When you play the piano, it's a priestly function. When you're changing diapers in the nursery, that's a priestly function. It's a sweet-smelling savor before the Father's throne of grace. When you're dumping the trash, when you're sweeping the floors, it's a, it's a priestly function as unto the Lord. Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for really the last two years. Father, we're simply recapping what we've studied already. And thank you for teaching us these principles. I I ask, Father, that we respond, that we identify the truth for what it is, and that we accept it, that we believe it, that we live it out, Father, that we would have the readiness, the attitudinal readiness to feed our thinking, to feed our actions. And Father, uh, thank you for uh, the plain language that you've given it here to the Philippians. Might we make the application? We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.